Gracious Father, we thank you again for the privilege to meet. And we ask that you would hear our hearts this morning as we come before you. Uh, that um, your worth, the splendor of your name would uh, weigh heavy on our being. That we would indeed tremble before you. For we are frail, we are weak. And we acknowledge that we struggle with sin. Our struggle is a real and present part of our Christian walk. We long for the time when we'll be free of the presence of sin. But now as we fight this good fight, we do so as as your instruments, saved by your grace, but yet in complete need for your enabling grace, for your strength, for your capacity to walk in righteousness. We come and confess before you, for you tell us it is good and right for us to do so. We acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge our need for you moment by moment in the Christian walk. Would you use us? Would you um, guard us and protect us from seasons of sloth and distraction? And would you use this as a means to display your worth into this world? And would you use us to worship you well and to please you and to honor you with all that we have and all that we are? We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, you'll be happy to know this morning that we are going to delve into Acts chapter 18. Yes, we have made the turn. Um, The title of this morning's message is The Presence of Christ in Evangelism. And really, I'm going to I'm going to take the first 11 verses, but out of that to kind of give us context. But out of that, I'm really going to focus on verses uh, nine through 11. To try to address the presence of Christ in evangelism, kind of building off of uh, our, our time together in God's Word, last Lord's Day, where we talked about the reality of repentance and Paul's call for repentance there. And these two kind of fit together well. So we may go back and pick up a, a little bigger chunk on another occasion, but I want to try to take just those few verses to try to deal with this reality of the presence of Christ in evangelism. But let's begin in verse 1 and read through verse 11 to kind of pick up the context here. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. So after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded that all Jews leave Rome. And he came to them. Because he was uh, of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, or by trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, uh, solemnly testifying to Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Patitus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Well, in context here, we see that uh, Paul has traveled from Athens into Corinth, which uh, is not that far away, but he's moved into Corinth. And a unique thing happens here. 
to Paul while he's in Corinth, mentioned in verses 9 to 11. We're going to kind of tackle or focus our time there this morning. But Paul has a vision. And so the Lord speaks to Paul in a vision. And again, Paul's ministry is definitely a unique ministry. He's an apostle of Christ, and we're looking at a, at a time and a context where the New Testament is not complete. So this is a unique thing that happens to Paul. Don't expect the Lord to speak to you in a vision. He has spoken everything that you will need for all circumstances of life in his word, that he has revealed to us and that he has preserved for you today. Paul's ministry is different than our ministry in that regard. So here Paul has this unique vision. Where the Lord comes and speaks to him. It's a supernatural vision. So Christ speaks to Paul verbally. And this is the absolute authority of the incarnate Christ. It's the absolute authority of God speaking to Paul verbally. But it's in the context of Paul's mind. Okay? It's not like the Damascus Road. Where others were affected, where there was something that was that was uh, relevant and knowable to others around. This comes in Paul's mind, just between his ears. But it is a full-on supernatural vision, much like the Macedonian call. You remember the Macedonian call on Paul, much like that. God is speaking directly to Paul, and so he receives this vision. He receives it at night, and he receives it, uh, we're going to find out in context here, while he's fearful and quite probably discouraged. So he's found his way to Corinth, the apostle of the Gentiles. And in Corinth, he finds uh, uh, a cosmopolitan hub, really. It's the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. It's an isthmus, a little connection of land connecting the southern part of Greece there to the larger northern part of Greece. It was a commercial city. It had access to the Aegean Sea to the east and the Adriatic Sea to the west. North and south, it also had a, had a land trade route running north and south. So it was a trade city, a commerce city that made Corinth a powerhouse of wealth, a very wealthy trade route, north and south, east and west. So the unique geography there made Corinth really rich. Corinth was also morally debauched. It was a wicked, corrupt city. It was the center of the cult of the goddess of love, Aphrodite, or Venus. Aphrodite in the Greek, Venus in the Latin. And there was a temple there, a very infamous temple, which actually was a wonder of the ancient world with its architecture and its size, a massive temple dedicated to the goddess of love, Aphrodite. And at one point in history, that temple housed over 10,000 prostitutes. So in the ancient world, if you were Corinthianized, that meant that you were overwhelmed with sexual immorality for a culture to be imposed by this Corinthian uh, uh, lifestyle. To be Corinthianized was to be uh, led astray into overt, horrific sexual immorality. So in effect, Corinth was the first century uh, a center of commerce, wealth, and moral corruption. And we find Paul here in Corinth, and he is faithfully laboring for the gospel there. Now, he's made his way from Athens to Corinth. Here, the gospel of the Gentiles, we find deep in Gentile world. And he's laboring for the gospel there. But he's, he's up to his, uh, uh, his old approach. His normal approach was to go to the synagogue first, right? Now, Athens was a little different. We didn't hear any, any word of a synagogue there, so... Uh, Either uh, would understand that it was there was no opportunity there for Paul to meet with the Jewish folks first, but now he's, there's a Jewish uh, synagogue there in Corinth. Again, this is a, this is a, a, a hub for just multi ethnic hubs. There's all kinds of ethnicities there in Corinth, and there's a synagogue, and so he goes there as is his normal habit, and he's preaching the gospel. It also reminds us here that uh, his funds were running a little low, so he starts working. 
right? He meets uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and he's their, their tent maker. She's a tent maker, so he he starts working with them. Uh, so he needs to pay his way, and as he's ministering there in the synagogue, he meets quite a bit of resistance, which is not uncommon for him, right? He's experienced this before. He's laboring away. He has a little extra work now because he has to kind of uh, uh, work on the side there because the funds are a little low. But he's laboring away. And here's the context. It seems that he's discouraged. We're going to see that in verse 9 because the Lord knows this and the Lord tells him not to fear. He's fearful. He's discouraged. The Lord tells him not to be fearful. Well, he's there alone. Timothy and Silas are not there. They're still back in Macedonia. They're back ministering to churches there that Paul had to exit away from quickly, right? Now think with me back. Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, the first leg of their, of this missionary journey. Paul has to be, has to be, uh, has to exit town quickly, right? Because of the Jewish leaders there in each place. The Jewish leaders rise up and cause a riot and make accusations against Paul with the local officials and force him out of town quickly. When we get to, to Lystra, the same uh, uh, religious leaders have followed him. They're starting to track him now all the way from the city in Antioch, through Iconium, and now the same folks track him down in Lystra and what happens is stones, right? They stir up a riot, uh, um, turn the city officials against him, and he's taken outside the city and stoned. So when he gets to Philippi, he's flogged and in prison. And he moves on to Thessalonica and Berea. And in each place, he's rushed away because of the threat of the Jewish leaders pursuing him and following him to, uh, uh, again, stir up trouble and try to turn the city officials against him. So he has to leave Thessalonica quickly, in particular. And it, we see that the, the reason uh, for the exits always are a persecution. But in Thessalonica, he's, he's uniquely concerned about leaving them so suddenly. There was much more he wanted to teach. And so Paul uh, leaves Timothy and Silas, back with these churches that have been planted in these areas. And he has a particular concern for Thessalonica. And we see that in First Thessalonians. We see Paul talk about that. And we see that he speaks to, uh, to them about the joy in his heart after Paul, after Timothy and Silas come back and give good report to what's happened. Uh, and the, and that they have they have held the faith. They have remained in the faith. And his labor there was not in vain. But Paul seems to be a little discouraged, and he's fearful about at this time about the Thessalonican church. Um, and he's also fearful about the same thing happening in Corinth. Each time. We see this pursuit and we see this uh, this uh, attempt of persecution. And sometimes persecution has come. But in either case, Paul has to rush away too quickly. Or either he's been physically persecuted. And so he's concerned about that. And his time there in Athens, he's not sure. There was some response, not much. In either case, he's fearful. He fears for the well-being, particularly of the Thessalonians, their spiritual well-being, and he fears for the trouble, the trouble of persecution, the physical danger. And so it's kind of catching up to Paul here in Corinth, and he's alone. Timothy and Silas have not come to him at this point. Well, the text says that they do make it in. In verse 4, he was reasoning there in the synagogue, as was his normal uh, practice. But then verse 5 says, when Silas and Timothy did come, they came from Macedonia, he began devoting himself completely to the word, uh, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So they've alleviated some uh, uh, some of his tent-making efforts here. They come and they've brought money. 
Philippians 4.15, 2 Corinthians 11.9 are references there that we see where they delivered an offering from these churches to Paul there when he's in Corinth. And that alleviated some of his time that he had to spend tent making. So that was good for him. And also we find out in 1 Thessalonians 3.6 that he received good reports when he was when they finally come down and rejoin him in Corinth. They give him good report concerning the Thessalonians, that his labor there was not in vain, that they're holding faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this encourages Paul. It's an encouragement to him when he finds these things out. But we still see him wrestling with fear when Christ meets him in the vision. And so I just want to note here my way of application, though, as we kind of build up that into context here in these first few verses. That Paul was tent making and he did get a little relief there. But an interesting fact, all rabbis were expected to pick up a trade. So this is normal for Paul. So Paul, he didn't just happen on this. This is something that he had learned. So just a little note for us there. Learning a trade is not a bad thing. The rabbis were expected to do this. And so this was when he when he runs out of fun, when funds run low, he just starts he starts you know tent making. Is it better if he has more time? Yes. Does he does it come? Does that happen? Yes. But when the funds are low, he does whatever is necessary. So there's a little more time he has to take to spend as a tent maker. One note here concerning that reality is an interesting little fact here in Paul's ministry there in Corinth. Uh, whatever the case may be, a preacher, if he's going to win souls, make disciples, he must be free of suspicion concerning money. Any consp- any suspicion concerning money. So if you have to be a tent maker, you just have to be a tent maker. That's, that's kind of the way it is. We need to see it that way. Because concern over money just can't come into the picture for a preacher, okay? Let's just take a little moment to mention that up front. That just can't be in the picture. That can't be an issue. That can't be a conversation. That has to be far above board. If you're tent making, you're tent making. If there's relief, there's relief. You have needs. You have to take care of the needs. God's going to see you through it. Never suspicion concerning money. That just can't be on the table. So that was free right there. That was just a little up front, okay? Financial support does come and allows Paul the time, time to preach more. He takes advantage of it, so he does so. And here's this good news. That perks him up concerning the Thessalonians. He's encouraged. And then he comes to a head here with the religious leaders in the synagogue there in Corinth. It says in verse 6, when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments, and that's a, kind of a visual picture of protest. It's kind of like, okay, that's the final straw for, for now. And he says to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So I want you to understand the language here and the context. He's never going to go into, a, he's not going to uh, stop going to synagogues and stop reaching out the Jewish people. We see him, he's going to continue to do that. What he's saying here is in Corinth, this has come to a head. He's done here. Right now. But notice he leaves the door open. He's going to stay with a Gentile and the Gentile lives where? Right next to the synagogue. Just as lives right next to the synagogue. They know where to find him. And again, well, the men's meeting this this past Thursday, we were talking about Romans 11, where um, Paul was was giving this very clear um, message of provoking the Jewish community by with the the turning of the Gentiles to the faith, to the worship of the one true God who revealed Himself through the nation of Israel specifically, and it's provoking them to jealousy. This being a means to move them towards seeing the reality of their God rightly and turning to him. And now here, seeing that Christ indeed is the Messiah. So there's that reality provoking them to jealousy. So the rulers of the synagogue, excuse me, the ruler of the synagogue there happens to be one that did turn. 
and believe on Christ. So we find this good news here. So although there was a, a coming to a head with his efforts in the synagogue, it's not that he turns his back on that approach or turns his back on the Jewish people. He's just focusing now at this point in this context. He's going to focus the tip of the spear into the Gentile community. And certainly his heart is not turned away from the gospel extending to the Jewish nation. So um, just note that. But that brings us to verse 9, and I want you to see there the command. So in verse 9, I hear Christ is speaking to Paul in the vision. In verse 9, he says, The Lord said to Paul in the night vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. So do not be afraid any longer. Fear not. Stop being afraid. He was struggling with fear. Again, there's, there's two edges to this when we think about in context with Paul. Certainly has fear for the ministry endeavor. Particularly, we see this spoken to directly concerning the Thessalonians. He feared that they would turn back from the faith. That's a weight. That's a weight that weighs on all Christians. That's just the weight of the Christian life. We're going to fear for the souls of those that we engage in discipleship, that we engage with in evangelism. We're going to fear for that. Particularly, it's, it's troubling if we're not around them all the time. Or we have to leave. Or it's now, it's, it's, it's via the internet or something like that, or it's family that's moved far away. There's a number of, of scenarios, but you understand what I'm getting at. So wait. And he also feared persecution all the way down to the physical pain. You fear that? You're not alone. It's a fear that's real for Christians. There was, this, there was a pattern here. And again, he feels like there's a possibility of this same pattern uh, reoccurring in Corinth. You know, here we go again. The leaders of the synagogue are stirred up here. Now they're going, you know, they're, they're, they're already blaspheming and turning against me. I can, you know, you can just, I can just see it in my head. They're going to go to the city officials. And they're going to stir them up with another riot. And I'm going to get beaten and flogged or stoned again. Actually, they tried to. If you look down at verse 12, they tried to. But God has already intervened on Paul's behalf regarding that. And we'll see. We'll get to that in a moment. But he's afraid. So Timothy and Silas come with money and good news. And this certainly helps Paul. But, but then Christ meets with him and says, stop fearing. Do not fear any longer. The fear had remained with Paul. It remained in his heart. This spiritual uh, concern for their well-being of those with whom he had ministered to, these church plants. And again, the possible persecution Unfinished work there and a possibility of a Jewish riot. It's just weight. It's weight on us. So ministry is a lifelong struggle. It's going to be that way. If you're a Christian, your ministry is going to be a lifelong struggle. You're going to feel this kind of weight and it causes fear. The response we have in our frailties to this weight of the Christian life is fear. It's a struggle. Fear of persecution, concern for the spiritual welfare of others. It's a heavy weight in the Christian wall. In light of this reality, we, like Paul, are instructed to, say it with me, stop being afraid. This is a command. This is not uh, an option. This is not an encouragement. This is a command. Stop being afraid. But now, the putting away of fear, as important as it is, that's not the thrust of this message that Paul receives in this vision. The very heartbeat, the very center of this message is this reality. But go on speaking and do not be silent. That's at the core of the vision. Alexander McLaren, speaking of this reality of this command to go on speaking says this, 
no better remedy for terror than the work of Christ. And how true he is. You want a remedy for your fear? You want a remedy for your fear in the Christian life? Go on speaking the gospel. Go on speaking. So Paul, he was doing that. He was still preaching. When they find them there, when Paul, when, uh, uh, Timothy and Silas find Paul there, he's speaking the gospel. He's speaking as much as he can. They come and bring him some monetary relief, and he goes out and finds more time to speak the gospel. He is doing that. He's just doing it with a heart that's fearful. And the Lord comes to him and says, do not be afraid. And more importantly, go on speaking the gospel. That is a present imperative. In other words, it's a lifestyle. It says, do what you're doing and keep doing it and don't stop doing it until your life, until your Christian life is over here. Do it. Continue to speak the gospel. Don't allow the fear to stop your commitment to preach the gospel. The same is true for us. Don't allow your fear. It's okay to have fear. It's what you do with And you lay it before the Lord and you hear the example that we have here in Scripture of Paul uniquely having this vision and understand that the same truth applies to us. Now, we're not going to get a unique vision, but we take the Scripture where we see the Lord respond to his his messenger here and the same truth applies to us. Stop being afraid and continue preaching the gospel. It's a command. The gospel must be spoken straightforwardly with words. If you want to do some kind of interpretive dance, um, you know, have at it, but it has nothing to do with carrying the gospel. You have to speak it. You have to say it with words. It has to be communicated with words. Speaking the gospel is a necessity. Stay the course of publicly communicating the gospel. Stay the course. Don't allow your fear to cause you to be silent. What the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah say there in chapter 20, verse 9. But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more of his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. Now, it's one thing to be afraid to speak the gospel. It's one thing to fear persecution. It's one thing to fear and dread uh, the the possibility of those you're trying to reach wandering away. But it's an entirely different thing to be indifferent. If you fear, that's normal. Lay your fear before the Lord. And hear the words of Scripture command you to go forth, fear not, and continue preaching the gospel. But if the gospel is not shut up in your bones in such a way that you can't stand it and you must get it out. If that's not real for you, then you have to ask yourself this question. Do I even believe the gospel? It's one thing to fear. It's another thing to have no concern whether you share the gospel or not. If that's true of you, you have to ask that question. How do I possess the gospel and have no burning to communicate? That's contrary to scriptural truth concerning what it means to be a follower of Christ. McLaren again, the craving to impart the gospel ever accompanies real possession of the gospel and how right he is. Don't change the method. Don't muck it up. Don't make it too difficult. But you have to verbally communicate it. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That brings us to the encouragement there in verse 10. Look with me in verse 10. I want you to see the encouragement here. If verse 9 was scary, well, verse 10 is encouraging. Fear not. Obey your God. Speak the gospel. Verse 10. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. Now we'll get to the 
the last part of that sentence. But I want you to focus your attention now on, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. Now that's encouraging, isn't it? If you're fearful, this is an encouraging portion of scripture for you. I, I, I can say this. Whatever you may be fearing as a Christian in your Christian life, whatever circumstances come up, whatever uh, uh, dread or failure or struggle you may be having, you can take it and you can bring yourself right back to Acts chapter 18, verse 10, and you can just hear the beauty of that encouragement to your soul. This is a divine revelation that comes with comfort. I am with you. So the Lord promises his presence to Paul. He doesn't say anything about the circumstances. Now he's going to, he's going to point forward. And that's going to deal with circumstances. He says nothing about the circumstances prior. And he gives no guarantees concerning the circumstances beyond Corinth. What he says that covers all of that is I am with you. He promises his presence. And the same is true for us. Deuteronomy 31.6 Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 condenses that very thought. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That is comforting. That is encouraging. The Lord greatly encourages Paul here by assuring Paul that, Paul that he'll be his security team. He's going with him. He's going to see him through his ministry call. And he's going to see you through your ministry call. I did just a, a couple years ago. One of the most fascinating I think, things I saw was, was with Chris uh, when we were in Uganda. It was just the coolest thing. So we we were we've been preaching, and Chris been faithfully preaching for days in opposition to the prosperity gospel, which is rampant in that in that area. And there's a prosperity uh, preacher right there in, in the heart. Of the capital city where we were staying, and he was he was the big man, and they would broadcast uh, his services on screens in the streets. They have screens set up in the streets, and you could hear it blasting. You have video video screens of this pastor, and he was a full on prosperity preacher. And this guy that had organized um, some organized, I use that loosely, but it organized some of our uh, trip, and somehow found his way to. Uh, get us to meet this pastor and to uh, have us speak at this church. And so we go there and we're waiting on this the, the big man to show up. And he rolls up in an entourage, several cars. And they open the door for him and let him out. He has, a, he has a security team with him. And he comes in and spends about 30, 40 minutes telling us how great and wonderful he is. And then... I'm saying, I'm saying, we're not going to make it out. That's what I'm thinking in my heart. We're not going to make it out of this place. I'm not going to get out. I didn't say that to you, Kenny, but that's what I thought. We're not going to get out. And then Christ, who is our security team, just moved this man to say, Chris, come on forward and preach. Because I thought for sure once we met him, it wasn't going to happen. And God just, our security team just brought Chris up in that service, which already they had, they had heard the prosperity gospel that night uh, to the nth degree. And then Chris comes up and just preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and the heinous sinfulness of the prosperity gospel because our security team is better than his security. <laughs> and the same is true for you. Christ is your security team. He's going to see you through your earthly ministry and every circumstance, every situation, until he's finished with you here on this globe. He's going to see you through. And that doesn't mean there's not going to be bad circumstances. That doesn't mean there's not going to be persecution. 
That doesn't mean any of that. It means something much greater and more beautiful. He's going to be with you during those times and he's going to see you through. And if there is an occasion where he chooses for you not to be harmed, he's going to keep you from being harmed. And in this case, he's going to keep Paul from being harmed in Corinth. The promise is his presence. He is our security. He's going to see you through your earthly ministry all the way through until he's finished with you. Amen? All the way through. So indeed, the Christian life is really indestructible. You're indestructible till God's finished with you here. No one's going to touch you in the sense of ruining your ministry or hindering your ministry until God is finished with you. And he says there clearly, very specifically to Paul, in this context, no man's going to attack you. You're not going to be harmed. And now, after all Paul's been through, that is a relief, isn't it? I mean, it's not, you know, he was, he was the man was stoned and left for dead. I, did God miraculously heal him there in that service? I don't know. I don't know exactly how that played out. Certainly he could have. But we know he was stoned and left for dead. So this is a very comforting thing. Look, they're not going to mess with you here. And that's all we get. That's all he needed there because that's where he's ministering. You don't need anything else. You don't need to know anything beyond that. You have a ministry context today. Today, God is with you. All the ministering that you'll do today in God's name, he is with you. And the same with you the next day, and the next day, and the next day, until he's done with you. It's always going to be true. So he's allowed to carry on his ministry there. There's not going to be a repeat of what happened in Thessalonica or in Berea or any other places. That's not going to happen here. You're going to carry on a long-term ministry here. And actually, this is the first place where he kind of settles down. He spends almost two years here. Not only on his third leg in Ephesus, he spent somewhere longer. And he's, of course, he's, in, he's imprisoned in, in, you know, in Rome and he's longer there. But in his missionary journeys, there's only one place that spends a longer length of time, and that is in Ephesus. So here's the first time that he's not having this ministry that's kind of scrambling on the run. He gets to settle in here. And how beautiful that is for him. How encouraging it is for him. He can kind of take a, you know, a breath of air and settle in and minister to these people. And that weight of not knowing if they've got the depth that they need is not there anymore. And so this is a beautiful relief for Paul and his missionary journey. And really, this is it. I mean, you know, we, we see the Macedonian call. We see him uh, come to Philippi. He enters into Europe. Uh, but, you know, Macedonia just kind of, now that we, we look back and we see, that was just kind of the, the opening of the door. Corinth is the spot. This is where the gospel goes forth. I mean, this is when it goes to the nations, Corinth was the spot. Now we can see, we can look and say, that was all leading up to this. This is the one, this is the place, this is the crossroads of the world right here as far as Paul's missionary legs. This is where it goes forward. Now he's got him and he says, as a matter of fact, you're going to be able to settle down here. Nobody's going to even harm you. You're not even get bruised up here. This is going to be good. I'm with you. I'm with you. And Christ is present with us in all our evangelistic and disciple-making endeavors. All of them. He is with you. Every time you utter the name of Christ to the glory of God in an evangelistic endeavor, every disciple-making event that you are blessed to have in your life, every struggle of the Christian life in carrying forth the gospel, He is with you. He is with you. Every one of them. He is with you. God, that is encouraging, isn't it? That is encouraging. His presence is yours in the deepest, most intimate reality in all circumstances. His presence will make you bold and courageous. You feel bold and courageous? You always feel bold and courageous? I don't. Are you scared? I'm always scared. I'm always scared. Christ. Christ's presence makes us bold and courageous. You don't conjure that up. 
If you do, it's just, it's just arrogance. But Christ makes us bold and courageous always. And he's ever present with us. Now I want you to see the promise there. Again, back in, in verse 10. And that comes at the end of the sentence there, the promise. For I have many people in this city. So here's an encouragement. I'm with you. And he gives him a little more. Here's a promise. I have many people in this city. Whoa, that's pretty good to know. And Paul's going to get to reap a little harvest here. And he knows about it up front. And actually, you do too. Because this is talking about election. God has a people that he has called to himself. And we're here in a time where the gospel goes forth and repentance is offered to fallen man. And you know something very encouraging up front. God is going to bring the people to himself. Your ministry endeavors in the gospel and evangelizing are not in vain. God is going to bring a people to himself. But notice there, in Paul's context, he's promised a vast harvest here. Now that's a contrast to the work there in Philippi. And Thessalonica and Berea, there, there, were, there was, there was the, the, the reality of some coming and how glorious that is, but it wasn't many. And here he's just told up front, I have many people. You're going to settle in here and there's going to be a harvest in Corinth. Something on a grand scale is going to happen in Corinth. And again, this is the language of the doctrine of election. So I'm going to read you a a definition from Wayne Gruden of election. It says, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. That's a pretty good definition right there. And that's what you see, right? That, that uh, Christ just in this vision just gives him that little glimpse. He reminds him, hey, I have many here. I've called them to myself. And you're going to be my instrument here to reap that harvest. John, John 6, 37, 39 speaks the same language. All that the Father has given me, this is Christ, all the Father has given me will come to me. How encouraging is that? It's a promise. They will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. How encouraging is that? That's what Paul knows. And Christ has just come to him in a, in a supernatural vision in a very unique setting and said, hey, by the way, there's many here. They're mine. How encouraging is this truth of Scripture, this truth of election concerning our call and our command to go evangelize. We do so knowing that God is with us. And we do so knowing that, that we're going to carry the gospel in a context where there is a people that God has called to himself. John 6, uh, 665. For this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless he has been granted to me by the Father. The Father grants uh, his chosen ones, the elect, to the Son as a love offering, the bride of Christ. We are a people given to Christ by the Father, drawn in space and time by the Holy Spirit. In the context of that supernatural work of salvation is the carrying forth of the gospel. That belongs to us. We carry forth the gospel and we do so knowing this, that God is with us. Every time we speak the gospel truth, God is with us. He is present. And we speak the gospel truth not into a void, not into an emptiness, not into a grand failure, but into the true reality that there is elect people that belongs to God, saved before the foundation of the world, going to be called in space and time by the power of the Holy Spirit through the means of pitiful little People like us that are fearful, but yet made bold by God, who will speak the gospel truth, and the Spirit of God will take that and quicken that dead heart to, to, to life eternal in Christ Jesus. That's the reality. That's the great hope. That's the great, that's the great joy. That's the great comfort. And that's the great promise. John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. You're going to carry the gospel into a fallen world which is hostile towards the gospel. And they may be hostile towards you, but you're going to carry the gospel knowing that Christ is with you every second of the way and that there is a people out there that God has already claimed for himself. And he will bring to faith in his space and time that he created through the carrying of the gospel by his people. That is a great encouragement. So the revelation of God's election in Corinth is an encouragement to Paul, is encouragement to his preaching, is encouragement to us. Election means that people are given to Christ and brought to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. And that's commanded of us. We go forth in obedience to God, carrying the gospel, knowing that he has called a people to himself. So Christ uses the doctrine of election to alleviate Paul's fear and to encourage him to continue. And the same is true for us. Election should alleviate your fear. It should encourage you to continue speaking the gospel. It's a real comfort and a real praise. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. Also, we have uh, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we were, <coughs> that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be the praise of his glory. The doctrine of election applies to us as well, doesn't it? It applies to us. We need encouragement, don't we? Do you need encouragement? I need encouragement. We fear. We fear troubles that come with the Christian life, don't we? I do. We fear when it comes to sharing the gospel. But be encouraged. A sure hope of election will quicken you for all service and embolden you when you fear the troubles that are to come. The doctrine of election will encourage you. Fear not. Know that God has a people for himself. And lastly, I want you to see just the response. I want you to note that. In verse 11, after he gets this vision, it says there that Paul settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So one thing we don't want to miss here is that Paul obeyed the vision. I mean, that's important. Don't miss that. He obeyed. Paul obeyed the mission or the vision. He responded with joyful obedience. He applied the vision by settling down there and beginning to preach, the minister, a protracted period of time. So he obeyed. And notice that election is personal. I have many people. Not I have a, a, a no-name lump. That may or may not respond to you when you carry the gospel. No, I have many people. That's personal. A people that are that 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 belong to Christ. It's a personal relationship. People that are given to Christ by the Father are coming to Christ in space and time by the call of the gospel. So the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Ephesians one four through six. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And that beloved is Christ. So by way of application, we think through these few verses here. My, my, what are we to do? Well, we must believe God. Believe God's providence has planted us here, right? God has planted us here. He's called us to preach the gospel in this context. This is where he's called us. And we too know that God has appointed many people to eternal life. That's a promise that belongs to us as well. It's not a promise that just belongs in the context of Corinth in the first century. This is true for all generations until Christ returns. So what do we do with that? There are those whom God has appointed to eternal life that will believe. Jesus never tells you, 
you will find nowhere in Scripture that Jesus tells you your evangelism is in vain. Or is expressed in a void. That's not a gospel truth. Your evangelism is never in vain. It's never expressed in a void because Christ has a people that he's called to himself. You must believe that Christ, he's called you here. This is where he's placed you. This is the primary context he's given you. You must believe that God has a people here for himself. You're called, you're commanded to go forth with the gospel primarily here. The word of God will not return void. The word of God will accomplish the purpose of salvation for which the Lord has sent it. you got to believe that. That's a gospel truth. We've been commanded to keep on speaking the gospel. That's your command. God is going to accomplish what he will accomplish with the gospel, what he intends to accomplish with the gospel. And he's commanded you to continue preaching it. Go on speaking the gospel. We know that God has elect people for himself and he has placed us here Believe that God will lead us to people that belong to him here. That's the application. Believe that God will lead you to people that belong to him here. And also believe that God will engage us in ministry elsewhere to those who belong to him in other places. Believe that and obey your gospel command and know that God is with you. He is with you and you are untouchable until he's finished with you. Obey your king and know that he has called a people to himself. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this great encouragement, this vision that we see here given to the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the reminder of your command on our lives. We thank you for the encouragement that you are always with us. That you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us. And we thank you for the kindness and the encouragement of your scripture, your word that you preserve for us, that we can see clearly that you have preserved the people for yourself. And what an encouragement that is for us as we go forth and carry the gospel knowing that your word will not return void. I ask that you would strengthen us, that you would embolden our hearts, and where we fear that you would teach us again and again to lay our fears upon you, knowing that you are ever-present, and that you will strengthen and encourage your people, and you will see us through until you call us home. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.